Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I'm joined by fellow Countryfile presenter Joe Crowley. Joe has presented a host of television programmes from Holiday Hit Squad to Police 5, but is best known for his regular slots on both The One Show and Countryfile. It's here he embraces his passion for the outdoors, and in particular rivers, and recently made a film for Panorama about the disgusting amounts of raw sewage entering British rivers, which is the main topic of today's chat. Now there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com, and you can help the podcast by donating £3 to help keep it going, which I'll use for web hosting or possibly a beer. If you could also leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on, that really helps the podcast out. Here's our chat. So welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you very much, Jack. Nice to be here with you. Yeah, no, I've been wanting to get you on for a while, and I think I contacted you a while ago, but you were under secret secret orders not to say anything, weren't you, for a bit? Well, yeah, in the middle of an investigation, this is the panorama we've just done on, on sewage pollution. Um it's just really tricky when you're fighting a war on many fronts and you're sort of asking for rights of replies from, from water companies to suddenly talk, try and talk about it halfway through a project when actually you don't know where you're going to end up. You know, you think you've, you're going somewhere, you think you've got some evidence, but actually there might be a really good explanation for it all. So you can't, uh, you can't second guess the, the process and, uh, and so it's nice to be able to speak to you now. We've actually broadcast and we're the other side of it. Yeah, and we're going to touch on that in a bit, but I thought we'd um, we'd talk a little bit about you first. So we go, a, 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 I don't know how many years ago it was now, but my, my first Countryfile appearance was with you. Which, was um, that your first? That was my first <laughs> one, yeah. That was it. I popped my cherry on that one. So uh, that was, twenty. I want to say 2013. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was a while ago. It was a while ago. We were in Derbyshire. We were at, on the Haddon Hall estate. And it can't be 2013 because I only I, I've been trying to get them to country farm myself for many years. I used to do the, the little sister version called Country Tracks. And I remember my first country farm gig was and possibly the best one I've ever done was just two weeks after my, my first son was born in 2014. So I joined in 2014. So I think it was the summer of 2015. Maybe we did that. That would make more. Yeah, my, um, my memories are blurred, to be fair. But yeah, OK, well, I remember the day anyway. I don't remember the date, but I remember the day. It was a glorious sunny day. It was beautiful, pristine river that had been uh, sort of lovingly restored, actually. And I know, you know, we can talk about these sort of things, but they'd been very brave up there that they'd stopped stocking. They had a very, you know, um, sort of respectable and, and sought after fishery. Um, they would have had, I presume, some very loyal uh, members who, who wanted to catch fish regularly. And they said, no, we're going to stop stocking this. Let's make this a wild brown trout fishery. And um, I think when you, you're, a, you're into fishing and you just focus on catching, you might think, why would you do that? But the more you learn about fish and ecosystems, actually, it's a no brainer, isn't it? You know, to try and have some trust in nature and going back to that route. And I remember we got you up and we were snorkeling and having a look and it was beautiful, wasn't it? Yeah, we got we got quite close to some of the trout. I remember them darting in and out, and it was a it was yeah. a lovely um, a lovely piece. And I think talking to a few fishing clubs, it seems to be one of those things where, as the new breed, if you want to call them that, are coming through. I think that mentality of heavy stocking is slowly 
dying out. Hope not everywhere, but I think a lot of clubs are kind of switching onto that and thinking actually, if we restore the habitat, we don't need to chuck in X amount of fish and they'll do it themselves. Yeah, I think again it's another theme that comes up a lot, but habitat we're trying to make it exciting now, but ultimately habitat's always been the boring issue, hasn't it? That actually people cling on to creatures, whether it's a beautiful trout, whether it's you know a sea eagle, whatever it is, or otters, you know, people cling on to very sort of tangible bits of wildlife. And actually, they are many ways of the pinnacle, aren't they? They are the sort of icing on the cake of a, of a healthy ecosystem, a healthy habitat. And it takes a lot to have trust in that because sometimes it's a slow process. But think of it another way. Why would you keep stocking carnivorous fish and part of their diet is eating baby fish? Why would you overstock you know, that population so you've got a lopsided population and then you've got no young fish coming through and, and, and you sort of kill off the future and you're, and you have to then endlessly keep stocking. You're in a sort of a fixed cycle, aren't you? It's, yeah. And they're normally, um, I think they're normally sterile, aren't they? Is it triploid they're called where they, they can't yeah. breed. So it's, they're not yeah. replenishing. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess, isn't it? They're eating the native ones. They can't breed. So there's no fish yeah. left. So you think, Oh, we better put some more in. So it's, um, but look, I, look, I understand it's very hard and there's a lot, cleverer people than, than me uh, who've got far more experience dealing with this and I also understand there's economics involved which thankfully I don't have to sort of um, you know get dirty my hands with but you know maybe it, it is the sort of lesser evil sometimes to do that and to keep keep money coming in. Yeah I think um, and it's a recurring theme of this podcast very few things in life are black and white and yeah it's it's very easy to say well this thing's wrong and that thing's right but when you get down to the nitty-gritty it's um, it can be a little bit tricky and I guess that um, is what you deal with quite a lot. And I was trying to think how to describe yourself because you're, are you a presenter? Are you a reporter? Are you a journalist? Are you all <laughs> of the above? Like what would you, what do you classify yourself as? I don't know. I suppose I, these days I classify myself as a journalist, but just someone trying to find that balance between making a living, doing what I enjoy, but also what I believe in and and trying to cover topics that might otherwise not be covered and I think there's an evolution as well you know I'm going to be I just had my birthday this weekend I'm 39 I'm going to be 40 next year and I've been on TV since I was 25 and in the early days you know I was fresh out of doing um, broadcast journalism postgraduate degree and you know I just had loads of energy for everything and you're young and you, you know and, and you sort of look good on camera and all that kind of stuff that goes with it and people just put you on as a presenter you know, and that's great. And and you take as much of that work as you can get and you sort of try and do a bit of everything for everyone. So, you know, I, I was a trained journalist, but I'd also got a history degree. So I was making a lot of history programs. Um, I was doing holiday programs. I was doing consumer. I was trying to wear as many hats as possible to please as many people. And gradually that slows down. You know, that has to happen. There has to be a cycle. There have to be other younger reporters presenters you know coming in and gradually some of that work you were doing which was just presenting you were there for a moment I mean ultimately anyone can kind of present to a point so you've got no god-given right to hang on to that kind of work and you have to start working out okay what do I care about what can I make my own and when you're struggling for work um, and I have it many times you know you have to kind of think if no one's going to give me work and why should they 
I have to come up with a story that's mine. And if and there is a certain meritocracy in television uh, and journalism, I think, that when you present a story, when you've done the thinking, you've done the research, then as part of the deal, they will let you, whoever you've pitched it to and has said yes, they'll let you present it, they'll let you report on it. Um, and so it goes. And, and so you have to sort of make your own luck. And I didn't once upon a time, I just had loads of work thrown at me, which was a luxury. But as as, as real life kicks in, you do have to sort of make your own luck. And, and you must know that, Jack, as much as anyone, you know, you, you brilliantly sort of started from, from nothing and, and built your way up. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, um, like I say, I'll take whatever's thrown my way. I'm not too fussy, but I, I did, um, I did a, a film for the one show on Robbins a few years ago with De- Deborah Meaden, weirdly enough, we did that. And uh, don't get me wrong, I like a Robin, but it's not my it's not my area, really. So I tried to be enthusiastic. I was like, oh, it's a lovely little Robin. But then, uh, if, if I mean, so for example, I think, I mean, it'll already been on by the time this podcast is out, but I think next week I've got a film on Countryfile about grayling. So I'm very yeah. passionate about grayling, love my grayling. And I think that was that was very easy to slip into. I didn't have to do too much work on that because I'm you know, very happy to talk about them. So, yeah, you're, you're always going to be more inclined to be... Um, more enthusiastic about something that interests you aren't you you are but it's part of the job as well especially when you're doing the presenting side uh you have to make the the actual skill isn't on camera uh it's actually making yourself curious and making yourself interested and i'm very lucky that i want to know about everything there is nothing i don't want to sit down and and sort of pour over in more detail so to some people you know i don't know what it, it could be a very random dry kind of financial story but to me that's an excuse to look into something I've never looked into before so actually I'm always excited by new challenges and just devouring information that's where I'm I find I'm hungry and if you have that hunger I think the rest of it kind of works out you know you're naturally interested in people so they are relaxed when they're speaking to you because you're not just there asking them a list of questions you've been given by a producer you're there because you want to know and actually when you want to know people want to tell you and then before you know it, you actually get very good interviews. And then the only frustration actually is that you have to cut those very good interviews down to a few seconds or a minute or something, you know. But uh, which is why the podcast era is now so nice because we can have conversations like this. Yeah, it's one of the things I really enjoy about it because it, it gives me an excuse to talk to people for an hour or so that ordinarily there wouldn't be much of a reason to talk to them for an hour or so, if that makes sense. So it's been really yeah. nice to talk to lots of people that I that you kind of know, but you don't know that well if that makes sense so it's um mm. it's nice to do that and you so you mentioned about this broad aspect of lots of things that you like but recurring theme i guess in in what you do is, is rivers and, and that sort of habitat so what is it about rivers that fascinate you i don't know is the honest answer um but i do know i am fascinated that is the right word and i'm just constantly drawn to them and you know my background is very ordinary. You know, I am the son of two secondary school teachers. I grew up in, in Norwich. And um, my parents, uh, my dad's no longer with us, but my parents were brilliant, but they didn't have any interest in in fishing or, or wildlife. In fact, um, I mean, not to say didn't have it, but that wasn't a part of our childhood. Uh, I've got a brother and a sister. In fact, music and the arts was, and we've always been sort of big on that. My brother went on to be a, a professional jazz musician and all sorts. So um, so this came not from something that was handed to me, but just, I, I kind of, it's, it's a funny thing to explain, but I feel a kind of innate connection. And I don't know why, and I don't know where it comes from, but I want to see under the water. I want to 
experience, you know, I, well, I, I, I scuba dive, I do a bit of fishing, I do anything I can to try and get in touch with that because it just, this glossy sheen you get on the surface, that's all most people see, but to go underneath and just to observe and to see these little organisms or big fish or whatever it is just interacting, I don't know why, but I can't get enough of that. I just stare at it and I want to understand it. I don't, I don't know if there always has to be, because often people get asked, why do you like these things? And there's not always a simple answer, is there? And um, I guess it's maybe it's partly the hidden, that they're, they're not, you can walk down the street, you can see birds and whatever, but under the water, it is a sort of secret world in a way. Not everyone gets to, mm. to unless you're a diver or, or, or an angler, I guess you get a little glimpse of that. So yeah, it can be mm. hard to put words to it, I guess, sometimes. But rivers in particular, they have an energy and they have a majesty in the landscape. And when you're by a river, or when you're sort of in a river basin, which I suppose you always are by definition, uh, <laughs> but when you're actually by that water body, because of the movement of it, and because it's so dynamic, because it's always changing, because it's always responding, and trying to carve a new path, and therefore everything that lives there has to go with it, it's this evolution in motion, isn't it? I don't find the same excitement looking over a gravel pit or a reservoir. It's not just water for the sake of water. It is these veins. And the more you learn about it, the more you feel connected to it. You know, growing up, I had no idea in Norfolk that there were chalk streams. I mean, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I started out as many sort of teenagers and people do with course fishing um, and, and didn't know anything about fly fishing. But it's only now in the last few years I've been going back to Norfolk and going, wow, I mean, they're only short and they're these little fingers of chalk streams, you know, around the Norfolk coast, but aren't they amazing? And um, yeah, there's Stiff Key, Glaven, there's, 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 some, there's some great ones. And um, yeah, they're remarkable things. And but I mean, it's all rivers to me. I think they're just the, the energy you get from them is fantastic. It's a sensory experience, I find as well. It's like the, the, the sound of rivers, like, like, you know, you can just close your eyes and hear the babbling brook or... Um, and kind of linking on to what we're going to talk to next, but the smell of a river, which unfortunately a lot of the rivers around me don't smell that nice. And it's normally <laughs> either uh, Himalayan balsam, which is obviously a, a non-native plant, or it's that sort of detergent smell, which I, for a long time, I assumed all rivers smelt like that until I started traveling around a bit more. I was like, oh, this, they don't stink like a, like a washing up sink. And obviously that's something you brought to, uh, wide attention recently on Panorama. So hopefully people will be able to catch up with that on iPlay if it's still uh, still on there. And uh, I guess naively, but part of that, you you looked into the pollution and all the problems that are going into rivers. So uh, one of the main ones is raw sewage. And mm. why is it bad for raw sewage to enter rivers, I guess? Because a lot of people think, oh, it's just flowing away. What's the, what's the harm? Well, yeah, a, a couple of things there. I mean, first of all, you know, this program was just focused on raw sewage. I am keenly aware there are many, many pollutants in rivers and, and the water industry will say, hang on, it's not just us. And it definitely isn't just them. You know, agriculture ranks as a, as a really big factor here. Um, but, you know, sewage and the water industry is up there as well. And um, And you're right, you know, maybe some people don't see it or wonder what the problem is because typically it's gone very quickly. And this is part of the interest for me, actually, that you can have pollution events that I think until very recently, really, I know people have been brilliantly campaigning on this for many, many years, but only with the advent of 
monitors, they're called event duration monitors, being increasingly introduced and used, not always reliably, but you know, it's getting better on some of these outfalls. Do we have some sense of what is coming out of these overflow pipes? We don't know the volumes typically, and we don't know exactly how noxious it is at different points, um, but we know when these, these spills start and stop. And, um, and they're really nasty. And look, in our panorama, I think we rightly had to focus on some of the unscreened sewage because as ever, and you will know this more than anyone, Jack, TV is a visual medium and it is actually very difficult to show raw sewage on television because it isn't, you know, perfectly formed human waste as people might imagine it in their head floating down a river, right? It is kind of just grey water. And it is a mix of everything that goes down, you know, the toilet or or the sinkhole. And um, it's unforgivable that people are flushing, you know, sanitary waste and wet wipes and they shouldn't be doing that. Um, but it's equally unforgivable that these are getting into our rivers and aren't screened out. And we saw awful examples of it in the Thames, which I know Thames Water will say, well, you know, the super sewer and all this kind of stuff is going to fix it. Actually, I don't think it's necessarily going to go as far as... Hammersmith pumping station which is where <laughs> some of this stuff was coming out anyway but the fact that we had so much of it you know huge amounts of it on the bank you wonder how much more is, is going down the river and then going out to sea so awful problem but to get to the nub of your question it is chemical and it's biological so actually I don't want to see wet wipes I don't want to see tampons in a river but effectively that's litter you know and actually the litter you know, by and large, isn't what is going to be killing invertebrates or or the or the this, the river life there. It is, you know, all sorts of things. But I mean, you name it. One campaigner said to me, you know, think about everything in all those products under your kitchen sink, all those cleaning products, all those detergents you have in your house. Look at the packaging. Pretty much all of them, it will say, dangerous to aquatic life. Okay, <laughs> so that is what is going down the sink. That is what's going in the sewers, amongst many other things, be it, I don't know, you know, um, the reproductive pill and all the, you know, estrogen and, and hormones and things, um, be it the, all the nutrients, you know, from, from human waste, um, even drugs, you know, there's been lots of studies on things like cocaine and, 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 you know, how you can tell that, you know, in the sewage. So all of that going into rivers is just desperate. And I think we have to get away from saying if we don't see fish kills it's not a problem and i think and we may come on to this but um the right the regulator has it, i think has been terribly underfunded from what i can tell and they don't have many enforcement people on the ground they will still respond to fish kills and they'll say they'll respond to other things but actually what we don't see and, and no one's really involved in as much as these smaller pollution spills but when they are chronic, and, and this is the point I'm getting to, I think, is, is that we now know sewage releases in this country are chronic. These are not acute um, episodes that happen after you know, a, a one in five year storm or even just a, a really big um, band of rain that comes in. These are chronic events that are happening regularly in some places in the country after just a few millimetres of rain. So if all those pollutants that I've just mentioned are regularly seeping into the watercourse, what does that do to the invertebrates? And I'm sorry to keep banging on about invertebrates. Your listeners will be very familiar with invertebrates. Maybe the general TV audience isn't, but you know, the creepy crawlies. It, I, I am not a biologist, 
uh, and I'm not an ecologist, but even I have an understanding that if you keep absolutely smashing the building blocks of life in these small insects, then it has huge knock-on effects to everything. You are not going to have otters or kingfishers without invertebrates, ultimately. You know, you need that base to the food chain. And I think that's what's so damaging. So even where fish can survive, and, and fish are far more mobile than many of these invertebrates, you know, and can move away from pollution spills, it's, it's, it's less common that they get caught and there is a fish kill. It's the sewage fungus smothering everything. It's the, it's the impact on invertebrate life that I think is really, really desperate. Because, sorry, to, this is a bit of a rant, isn't it? At the end of it, you know, um, what you also learn doing something like that panorama is the phenomenal capacity of rivers to recover. And that horrible sewage fungus we saw in the programme, I think when we were there, it had been, untreated sewage had been going to Colwell Brook for 14 days, which then leads into the Windrush. We're in Oxfordshire near Whitney at this point. Um, I think in total there was 19 days uh, non-stop sewage going into that brook. And it was smothered in sewage fungus. Um, and those that have seen the programme will know the bit I'm talking about. I have to say, if you go back a, a month or two later, once the sewage has stopped, the fungus has gone, the fish are there, you know, things are happening again. And I think it shows, um, not always, but actually often, there is a fantastic potential for, for nature to get over these spills quickly. That's not to justify the spills in the first place, but... You know, actually, it just shows that if we treated our rivers, if we, you know, looked at rewilding in this country through the veins of rivers, you know, start with rivers and move outwards, gosh, what you could achieve would be phenomenal. Yeah, no, definitely. And like watching that program, one of the things that struck me, because I, I have to admit, I'm quite picky with the rivers that I go in, uh, I, I guess partly from a health point of view, but also because I want it to look nice. And and uh, so if, it, if, a rig, if a river is fungusy up, uh, full of fungus and, and sanitary trowels it, it's not the sort of thing that spring watch typically unless they're doing a really environmental piece are going to want with trout in the background so i tend to cherry pick mm -hmm. my rivers but um i do see it occasionally normally on local rivers and you know i think we all have a we all have a personal river and one one near me is a it's a tributary of the trent but it goes through a council estate and there's a lot of i'm assuming there's sewer pipes now having seen the program and yeah it will just be covered in that kind of manky fungus that you showed in the program and it can be pretty pretty horrific but then you can go a mile up and like you say it's almost like a chalk stream so it's um it is a shame and the other thing that really caught my attention on the on the film that you did was that the wet white reef like mm -hmm. the, the only way to put it and if again I, I do implore people to check the program out if you can but essentially it's just it's on the thames in, in barnes i think you mentioned yeah. the program yeah it's just this mound of wet wipes and everywhere you look and it is just um, it's just shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Yeah, no, that really took me back, actually. And I, I was really surprised I didn't already know that. Uh, I worked with a brilliant producer called John uh, in Belfast who who um, put us onto that. And it was a very strong start to the to the show. But yeah, it it's... Given actually, you know, most sewer overflows are supposed to be screened, given certainly where sewage spills out of sewage treatment works, it's supposed to be screened. It's remarkable just the tonnage of waste that's ending up in the river and um you know the, the reason that wet wipe reef which i found really hard to say we filmed on the uh, coldest day in in february 
and I'd been facing the wind uh, just because where I had to stand for the interview for too long and my lips had frozen and I couldn't say wet wipe reef and I still struggle today um, and I think we cut it out in the end we let the contributors say those words um, but uh, but yeah th 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 it was absolutely shocking we were on the inside of a bend so effectively what's happening is is the water is slower on the inside of the bend and therefore this waste is dropping out of the water column and so if that much waste can drop out of the water column just on that bend you know in the fast part of the river I mean goodness me and this is and a lot of these wet wipes you know they're plastic based this is all heading out to the sea uh, to our beaches to our coasts you know we didn't touch on beaches in the program because I, I fought very hard just to keep this on rivers I think um, huge respect to Surface Against Sewage and um, and various campaigners and the progress that has been made with water companies, to be fair, um, as well, playing their part um, on our beaches. It's not still good enough. But this was to talk about the, the particularly fragile ecosystems that are rivers and um, and even the Thames, you know, to see that kind of level of waste. It just it cannot be acceptable in this day and age. No, no, no certainly not. And you mentioned that a lot of it was illegal. So and, and it. I wondered, is it the sort of thing that would the water company say that it's a glitch in the system or is it something conscious or is it just that we simply don't know? Like, because it seemed kind of a grayer. I, I wasn't sure whether um, the companies are doing it in full knowledge or whether it's just something that's happening that they're not aware of. I mean, I don't know what's that. This is where I have to start being a bit bit careful with what I say, I suppose, so we don't both get sued. But here's what, here is what we found. We found... We found reliably, we believe, uh, and this is based on water companies' own data, we believe they were breaking the law and breaking their permits because a lot of the time they simply weren't treating enough sewage. Now, sometimes, in a couple of occasions, they kind of put their hands up to that. And um, Thames Water didn't really contest the fact that their giant Mogden works is nowhere near being legal. I mean, some works... You know, the amount they're treating is only 85, maybe 90% of what it should be. It's getting close to what they should be doing. Mogden was nowhere near. I mean, I really do believe that is scandalous. And I, uh, we had to broadcast the panorama at fairly short notice, um, which is for boring reasons to do with scheduling and um, the royal um, prince uh, prince's death. But um, I think if we publicised it or had a chance to publicise it more, I think the Mogden stuff would have got <laughs> a few more headlines because, you know, it, it really isn't good enough. In other places, um, they say it's happening because there's groundwater. The groundwater levels coming up and getting into the pipes and that's diluting and swelling the amount of sewage they have to deal with. So there's too much sewage. Um, and, and that isn't really a, a valid excuse, actually, because if you look at the permits for, for um, sewage treatment works, they say that in the event of rainfall, now it cannot be that on dry days, albeit with high groundwater, that that counts as rainfall. And actually the Environment Agency, I, I know in recent weeks and perhaps before, but it, certainly in recent weeks have started to sort of lay down the law on this a bit. So I don't think um, that is a valid reason. But essentially, yeah, look, we... Um, we worked with some campaigners who had been looking at Thames Water stuff. I think there was very clear illegality in what Thames Water were doing. We then th said, let's go and look at a handful of sewage treatment works in other areas of the country. And really, you know, we shouldn't be finding that many examples. And I'm saddened and, and was shocked to say that we did find quite a few examples across many different companies. Um, different companies give different reasons and different excuses 
but the data clearly showed the data that we were looking at clearly suggested they were breaking the law i don't think on the frequency we were finding it that that can be said to always be an accident and i would also say that the most expensive part of dealing with supplying water and treating sewage is treating sewage and so campaigners will point to the fact that actually you know these companies are dumping sewage they should be treating and ultimately that saves them money potentially this is a very difficult industry and and it's not just down to the water companies everyone has a role to play in this ultimately there's a question of whether we should all be paying more for our water there's a question of whether off what uh, should allow the water companies to charge more for water so they can invest in some of these problems i suppose off what might say well how do we know it's not just going to go into shareholder dividends if we allow them to charge more you know so there's a whole issue here um and Again, you, you know, when Offwatt made their last determination, some companies appealed it and said, come on, give us a bit more money. Um, some got a little bit more money. But, you know, it's very, very complicated. But at the bottom, the bottom line, I think, is that the government is intent through Offwatt on, on people having very low water bills. And given from what I've seen making this programme, I think I can say the infrastructure is creaking. It hasn't kept up with growing population uh, population, or with changes in rainfall patterns or all these things that put pressure on. You know, it is time to have a proper nationwide review of how we go forward, how much we pay for water and what the water companies need to do. Because I don't think they've done enough either. So there we go. We had um, Fer Fergal Sharkey came on a few months ago and he was mentioning that... Um, <laughs> He he was he'd, he'd say how it is more than I would. Yeah, yeah no, he did. Yeah, yeah, no holds barred. But he was mentioning like London is heading uh, for you know it's running out of water. It's heading for a drought basically because mm. that or the southeast of England in a whole really because um, I I can't, I can't remember again. Listeners, if you're interested, you'd have to kind of go back and listen to that one. I think it was something to do with just lack of reservoirs and things like that in this. Yeah, no, no, I think and look, I can't remember, but I think it's you know, the last reservoir. It's, is it 76 or something? You know, again, fact check that. But it's been a long time. And, you know, a lot of London and the southeast rely on groundwater. Groundwater is going to be increasingly scarce. We covered this on the one show when we were looking up, uh, looking at the tributaries of the Cam drying up um, a couple of years ago, had a really, you know, dry winter. And then suddenly all these, you know, effectively chalk streams start going because simply because we're abstracting too much water. This has been going on for for a generation, um, but it's being keenly felt now. And I think the really and I'm sure Fergal um, would have mentioned this, but I think about a year and a half or two years ago, Cambridge Water, who are a supply company only, they don't deal with sewage, they supply, you know, people in Cambridge with drinking water. I think they were bold enough to use the word unsustainable for the first time. I think they came forward and said, look, this isn't sustainable. We've got a growing population here. The groundwater, if anything, is decreasing. This doesn't this doesn't end up you know, going well, ultimately. And I think London and Thames Water have the same problem. And um, if I branch out slightly, you know, I don't know if you've ever had Paul Jennings from the River Chess Association on, but um, he is very strong on um on chalk streams and aquifers and um and there is a situation right now whatever you think of hs2 that the boring machines that are about to go through parts of the chalk aquifer for hs2 um they need to use a huge amount of water so there's problems there but also gosh what if something went wrong with the aquifers that that 
that give us our drinking water in the southeast of England. You know, I wonder. I hope that that couldn't happen, but um, you must get a bit nervous when you're boring big holes through chalk. You'd like to think that they've done all the feasibility I'm studies, sure they have. but I'm sure you know, who who knows? We could run out. Who knows? But um, you mentioned the the EA um, earlier as well, and again, this might be another question we have to dance around a little bit. But why 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 aren't the EA enforcing it so much then? I know they are to a degree, but they could do more, arguably. Well, um, again, I think this ultimately comes back to politics. Uh, I was very disappointed that Sir James Bevan. Uh, didn't give us an interview, nor did the chair of the Environment Agency. You know, I think I think it looks terrible for them that somewhere like Mogden, the third biggest sewage works in the UK, is clearly and regularly breaking the law, and either they're not aware of it or they're turning a blind eye to it. I don't know which because they didn't give us an interview. Um, they put Rebecca Powell up, Defra did, for, for interview, and I was very grateful for her time. But the government seemed to be intent on making water companies report more and, and put more data in the public domain, which which is great. But actually, the water companies already know when they're spilling. They already know the data. It's just whether they publish it or not. So I don't think the reporting is everything. Um, I mean, the truth is, I think, and, and this is coming from, from people inside the Environment Agency I've spoken to, is that you know clearly there are a lot of very good people in the Environment Agency. There are a lot of people on the ground that you and I will have met who deeply care they don't go into a career in the environment agency to get rich. They go because, you know, they want to do their bit and they want to safeguard the environment in this country. And the enforcement officers just aren't there. You know, so I've I, I, one person I spoke to uh, anonymously for uh, the programme told me they had seven or eight enforcement teams in their patch before 2010. Now they have one and a half. Um, that many, you know, they, the, the, the fraction of uh, staff they now have to, to enforce is just not adequate. And many of the people who've joined since 2010, who make up that small number of, of enforcement officers, you know, barely know what a sewage works looks like. Because since 2010, just for those who don't know, since 2010, we decided in this country that effectively the water companies were going to mark their own homework operator self-monitoring so there are lots of conditions to to permits at sewage treatment works and the water companies have to take samples and check that they're not putting too much you know whether it's phosphates or what else into into rivers and check that they're effluent they're treated effluent what comes out the end of the process is up to scratch and they do those tests themselves i spoke to another whistleblower who said look at our company we always knew when the tests were going to happen we're supposed not to know we're supposed to be someone from a different part of the company comes and does the test, but we know and we will do things we wouldn't normally do. We'll switch things off or turn things on for that 24 hours to make sure we pass the test. This is a That's a huge allegation and not one that I've been able to fully substantiate, not one that was in our programme, but I am telling you what whistleblowers told me, you know. So, um, and look, we need enforcement because with the best will in the world, and some water companies may be trying to do the right thing, you still need somebody checking up and you need good numbers of expert people out there and the numbers of tests being done by the Environment Agency, the numbers of prosecutions being carried out, in my opinion, from what we've seen on, on in the research this programme, it just isn't sufficient. And when you don't have sufficient enforcement, unfortunately, you're going to get problems and you're going to get illegal behaviour. 
Yeah, I, I think that mirrors a lot with the um, with the EA because they get a they get a lot of flack, and I do I do feel for them. I think like because of the the reductions in staff and and whatnot, and I think more needs to be done. They need to hold their hands up to bits and bobs. But I mean, if you look at kind of fisheries, more my side of things. But um, I think for the entire east of England, from the Humber uh, down to East Anglia, there's something like two officers uh, to enforce like rod licenses and stuff like that. So how is that practical? You know, so it's tricky. And what the, what DEFRA will always say, or the environment agency would always say is, um, actually, we're fine. We've got a huge budget. And I forget what it is. It's like 4.5 billion or something. And they'll say, you know, and, and it sounds very good. And it sounds like, okay, you're right. We shouldn't be worried. But when you look into that budget, you look into where it goes. Predominantly, it goes into flood defences. I'm, I'm not questioning that quite right. You know, people, you know, can't have their homes and businesses flooded. But I'd implore listeners to, to dig a bit deeper because actually I don't think the resources are there for enforcement. I don't even think the fines, when they do prosecute people, and Thames Water or whoever gets a £20 million fine, I don't think that goes back into enforcement. I think that goes back into a general pot, not enforcement. That's what people on the ground at the Environment Agency have told me as well. I don't know that's definitely true. I'd have to get their response and we didn't get an interview, so um, I'll leave that hanging. But, you know, that's... Yeah, there, there is a lot more that needs to be done. And ultimately, you know, it, it, it's a knock on from austerity. Whatever you think of austerity, you know, we had to cut back public spending. And this is one of the areas where I think it's been keenly felt since 2010. Yeah, no, it's bound to be uh, in that in that situation, isn't it? Well, I'm going to end on uh, on one last thing, which is a slightly uh, I was going to say more positive note, but I don't know if it is, which is how how Brexit is uh, essentially fucking up our eels is the only way I can, <laughs> I can put it so I think uh was it on, on Sunday you did a piece on um Countryfile with Eels and I what because I, I know Andrew very well and I thought oh this will oh, be yeah. this will be in fact I, I don't know if he mentioned but I was going to come along that day I was very oh, I, right. I was actually going to come but uh, because I didn't realize how far it was it's I, and I couldn't find anywhere to stay and obviously travel at the minute is a little bit trickier but I was going to come and film yeah. the release so I'm, I'm doing it with him uh at the end of April he's going to catch some elders oh, for me and well, get this- some some footage of them yeah and this was the this was the sort of first attempt really so there'll be you know here we are we're recording this in sort of mid-april there's at least two sets of big tides still to come with eels this year i mean eel numbers we did eels on country file a while back we were looking at the illegal trade um and, and made a bit of progress with at least showing that although uh, people like the sustainable eel group have done sort of brilliantly to to get a good legitimate system going where where fishers are involved in that system and rewarded for catching which is eels which are then bought by restocking projects and that's good there is still an illegal side uh, sadly and i think it's it's a very serious illegal side it's all wrapped up in um, organized crime and all sorts going out to the far east but um yeah but the, but the numbers i think there's there's a bit of bit of optimism now i think some of the recruitment numbers of, of young eels coming in in the last year or two look like the decline is is slowing stopping or even being reversed which is great and the film we made uh was a positive one because look brexit's a, a funny old thing and it's been very difficult to predict yeah 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 that's my very diplomatic summary of brexit funny old thing um it's been very difficult to predict all the impact it's had uh, and i don't know if anyone really thought it would happen with this what is ultimately quite a small industry so we're not talking about this you know scottish fishermen it's their livelihood year round there are very few people to do with eels 
that get a year-round livelihood from them. There's a, there's a couple of buyers and, I, and, and sort of my sympathies are with them because they can't operate this year. But mostly the people catching the eels have other jobs or they're retired and this pays for their holidays each year. Well, this pays for, you know, it's a nice bit of extra cash coming in. And they love the eels and they're passionate about it and they're they're a good bunch. And so this year, just to explain to listeners, essentially eels are critically endangered. So if you're going to trade them between two countries, both countries have to agree. And Europe didn't agree for our eels to be caught and sent there. So suddenly, we don't use eels in this country. So suddenly there is no legitimate way eels can be caught and sold, including to Northern Ireland because it's within the customs union. And each year, several million or however many go to Loch Ness and get stocked there. And then they're caught as adults later on. So a bit of a problem, but I thought um, what Andrew was doing with Sustainable Eel Group is fantastic in that he was trying to ultimately get a pot of money from the government to pay the fishers to catch the eels and then using those catches to actually restock in other places in the UK. That is a great idea, or it seemed to me a great idea. I don't think the government, I mean, it, these things are often slow and bureaucratic, um, have been very forthcoming with money. But what's very heartening is that even without the money, a lot of fishers who say, well, look, I've done well out of this over the years, are buying their rod license which cost them 85 quid or, or whatever it is and are turning out it's not a rod is it it's a, it's a, it's a license to fish you don't fish for rods but yeah you'd, you'd be there a while if you're trying to get them on a, on a, on a <laughs> yeah exactly um anyway they are turning out they are catching and i think we uh saw 150,000 released up stream of a um of a barrier you know and that's the whole point that in this country if you think about somerset levels you think about what would have been great wet habitat, you know, this big sponge of landscape along the west coast or the southwest as well. Um, it isn't there anymore. We've drained it, we've farmed it, we grow food, food that we need to grow. So I'm not being critical, but I'm just explaining that we have lost that habitat. And the habitat that is still there, we have flood barriers, we have weirs, we have all sorts of problems. So actually, the more we can lift some of these eels out of the seven and the parrot, where they are sort of just trapped in huge, huge numbers. And there's no point to them all being there. You need to spread spread the eel love. You need to put them around the country. And um, and to be fair to them, because I've been a bit critical in this podcast, but the Environment Agency uh, did turn around quite quickly and give Andrew permission to move them to other places in the catchment. They also turned around very quickly and gave me permission to catch some eels that night on camera, which I'm very grateful uh, for so um, it's a really nice idea and actually it, the idea of the film and I hope it came out was sort of a rewilding project so it's sort of snatched from the jaws of Brexit defeat you know that actually we can use this and, and have a really positive upturn and um, and there are some people that really care because the worry is if years and years of work of having a really good system where everyone's legit everyone's on board if that falls away overnight of course there's going to be some temptation for some people to go back to the dark days of illegally catching, of trying to put them in suitcases and taking them out to, to Asia. So, um, so yeah, I applaud. There's a lot of, there's actually optimism in the eel world. I mean, we often talk about, you know, sewage or bad news stories. There are some very good people doing some very good things and um, and the eel numbers look, look touch wood, like they may have stopped declining. And that's a pan-European effort. That's environment agency. That's, that's everyone involved, wildlife crime as well. So, um, yeah, that's a positive note, I hope, to, to end <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> the seven acts of funnel, doesn't it? If you look at I mean, it's kind of perfect. Mm. So the majority, because people might say, why don't they do it themselves? Because the eels kind of get funneled up the seven and they get to Tewkesbury 
and they struggle. I think it's Tewkesbury. It might be the wear up, but they yeah, struggle it's, to it's get a up. Yeah, it's Tewkesbury. That's yeah. it. So if they stay there, they're just going to get eaten by everything when they could go upstream and, and carry on with their, their lives. And one of the facts Andrew told me, which I think is mind-blowing, is pre-industrial revolution, eels made up 50% of the fish biomass around the yeah. UK. That's how That's numerous it. they were. Half, a, So one, one in every second fish you would catch would, would be an eel because they were so numerous. And now... Yeah. You know, they're in some places they're completely gone, other places you get the odd one, but that's how numerous they were. So that's what the levels that they should be at. And so that's many it. uh animals, you know, and, and people eat them. I mean, I smoked eels quite I quite like smoked eal, but if it's sustainable, I should put my hands up. But it's um it's quite good. But you know, bit bitterns <laughs> love eating them and uh, otters yeah, yeah. love eating them. So yeah. And that's the point. They are meant to be eaten. So, you know, and, and the reason they arrive in such massive numbers, it's the same as invertebrates are in massive numbers, is that they are the, you know, that, that bit of the food chain that everything is supposed to predate on, really, in their early life. And then some of them will grow, survive and return to spawn. And as you say, they are trapped in these congregated sort of spaces. They congregate there and... Um, and, and actually, you need to share that. It doesn't just need to be things eating them in the seven and the parrot. They need to be shared around the country. And I do wonder, and this is just a very cod bit of theory, but when we look at many, given this remarkable stat you just mentioned about them, used to be 50% of the, the, the biomass. When you look at things like the problems we've got with salmon, declining numbers of salmon, you know, and, and clearly they are yeah getting closer and closer to extinction you wonder and and seabirds coming further inland and i know lots of salmon fishers of which i'm not one but a lot of salmon fishers do sort of moan about seabirds and and, and goosanders and all and, and all that eating them well what about if those eels were still there in those big numbers you know would the young par would the young smolts be predated upon in the same way what if that food source was more abundant all these things are so complicated including catches of sand eels in the north sea you know you wonder if if some species are taking the hit for there being fewer eels and uh, because eels are all around the uk they, they're this wave of protein that wash up once a year and as you say the funnel the funnel in in in, in bristol it concentrates them beautifully and that's why they're caught there because you just wouldn't get them in numbers in in lincolnshire or, or Northumberland, but they are there, you know, and they are arriving at this time of year, and um, and it's sort of nature's bounty, and um, and I hope in our lifetimes we see it returned. I hope we see those numbers just keep building and building and building because every single humans, but every part of our ecosystems will benefit if that's the case. Yeah, it's got. To, I mean, I, I'm sure someone's some research on it, but it's got to have had an impact in in some degree, but. Yeah, who who knows? We might. I mean, I, so I'm, I'm about as far inland as you can get in Nottinghamshire. So we don't have <laughs> huge amount of eels, but we do get you know the odd one. And I'm like, bloody hell, you've come a you've come a good way up. You know, some of the eels on the Trent. I think where I live, it must be like seven weirs they've had to cross. So like, how they've done that? I mean, and you think if there was weirs, weren't there? They'd obviously shoot. But was... well, they're survivors, aren't they? And the and the adults can can crawl over, can come out and crawl over obstacles on sort of misty, damp autumn nights. They can the young ones do their best that you've seen them probably those pictures of them crawling up sort of wet sides of a weir and just trying to wriggle their way up but they are remarkable creatures and again like the salmon you know they have the inverse direction of travel don't they but like the salmon they tell us so much about both our freshwater systems and our marine ecosystems yeah no definitely so there is light at the end of the tunnel with some of our some of our rivers anyway but fingers, um, crossed, yeah. fingers crossed well look buddy it's always a pleasure to have a waffle about rivers to you and and catch up so thanks uh thanks for joining me 
Thank you, Jack. Been a pleasure. All right. Cheers. That was Joe Crowley. It's some sobering stuff thinking about all that waste entering rivers. In 2020, raw sewage was discharged 400,000 times, equaling over 3 million hours of it entering rivers. We simply have got to do better than that. And it's important that river champions like Joe are highlighting this. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, at TitBearded, and there's the Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. In next week's episode, I'll be talking to Jessica Mitchell, who is a wildlife and underwater camerawoman, having worked on various blue chip nature series. And we delve into some of the heavy issues, like why so few women are in tech roles in wildlife filmmaking. Is there a high number of privileged people in the industry? And her advice for making a start in this career. It's going to be a great one. This has been the Beardest Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.